I found it quite exciting working for Rupert uh, and very encouraging and rewarding. If, if you talk to people today, they sort of struggle to compute the idea of a left-wing Rupert Murdoch back in his younger years. I think the main driver early on was his dismissal by the establishment, annoyance and frustration at that. And that may explain some of his politics. This is John Menadieu. Throughout one of the most tumultuous periods in Australian politics, he worked as Rupert Murdoch's right-hand man. Rupert was, in those early days, he was expecting that he would follow in the footsteps of his father, Keith Murdoch, who was sort of the doyen of the Melbourne establishment, close to the Liberal Party, close earlier to Lyons, the Prime Minister. And Rupert felt that that establishment should have given him the sort of acceptance that his father had. And they never gave it to him. During the 1960s and 70s, Rupert made some of his most daring moves. With no guarantee they'd pay off, and he had everything to lose if they failed. Looking back at those years, John has a clear view about what drove Rupert. He saw in him a hunger for his late father's approval and an anger at being rejected by the Australian business and political establishment. He never forgot that that establishment rejected him and so much of his public life was then trying to establish himself as acceptable in senior business and political circles. And that, I think, is a feature of Rupert's life that no one else really has focused on, but I I believe that it was a key factor of the way that uh, Rupert responded and wanted to ingratiate himself with people in power. I'm Paddy Manning. I'm trying to understand what drives Rupert Murdoch, Australia's most powerful man. Is it money? Is it power? Or is it something deeper? In this episode, we're going to look at one of Rupert's first big gambles, how he set up The Australian, the first newspaper I ever worked on. I look at how he got his first taste of true political power, helping to install Australia's most left-wing Prime Minister and then sack him. Rupert is a brilliant businessman, so why did he launch a paper that only ever lost money? In today's figures, The Australian lost a whopping $300 million in its first 20 years. Only political power could make that worthwhile. But did Rupert get what he wanted? Ultimately, this is also the story of how Rupert established the print monopoly that still defines Australia's public life. From Schwartz Media and 7am, this is Rupert, The Last Mogul. Episode 2. The Kingmaker and his king. The exacting business of getting out the first edition of a new daily goes on amidst the clatter and hammering of giving it a home. But a deadline is a deadline. It's July 15, 1964. In an old showroom in Canberra, the very first edition of Australia's first national broadsheet 
was about to roll off the presses. Rupert Murdoch was there. We're in the business to educate and to service the public. We had to provide an essential service. Your place part of that service, I'm sorry to interrupt you, part of that service, of course, is to provoke people to think and to have opinions. What will be the political line of the Australian? Well, it'll be pretty active. One might say liberal with a small L. I wanted to speak to people who were witness to the rarest of events, the birth of a newspaper. The search led me to Sandra Hall. I arrived there quite early on in the piece. So I was a kind of witness to those very early days as people arrived. In her 20s, she was a cadet reporter who'd moved from Sydney to join Rupert's adventure in Canberra. Staff were turning up from all over the country. The paper was audacious and people wanted to be part of it. It was very exciting. We did get the idea that this was where the action was going to be and this was an entirely new enterprise that nothing like this had been ever tried before. Everyone there, all of the reporters, the sub-editors, the designers, the printers, had tied their fate to Rupert, himself just 33 years old. No one had ever had the guts to try this in the past and Murdoch was really, really taking something on in doing it. You know, there's a lot of hope and inspiration flowing from him. You know, he'd taken on these titans of the newspaper business and he didn't have a lot of money, apparently, to do this. So he was admired for taking this gigantic chance, you know, of taking on the challenge of getting this paper, not only designing and, you know, working out what it was all about. He was there, you know, he was, he was dynamic. He was running everywhere, you know, he always had his shirt slightly out of his trousers and, you know, he's omnipresent. When the time arrived to print the first edition, everyone rushed down to the print room to witness the moment. We all went down on the stone as the paper was printed. Murdoch was there, buzzing around. There's a famous image of Rupert leafing through his very first copy. He's standing there, shirt and tie, vest open, hair tousled, everyone keeping a respectful distance as they wait to find out. Did he love it or hate it? The edition was busy. Small print, serious stories. The splash was on the federal politics of the day. And across the top, in capital letters, was the only masthead that Rupert Murdoch ever created. The Australian. Could you describe which of your newspapers, tell me which of your newspapers you care about most? Oh, The Australian, I think. Certainly at the moment. It's been the greatest challenge uh, and the biggest, certainly the biggest task that I've had. The biggest challenge I've had put before me, I think, in life yet is to uh, establish this paper to overcome the obstacles that we have, still have more to overcome yet. The Australian was a hugely ambitious, idealistic undertaking. Rupert was hoping that if he could pull it off, he would have a national mouthpiece. It would hold a mirror up to Australia in a way no paper had done before. But it was also a huge gamble. It was incredibly expensive to produce. Right from the beginning, Rupert was dedicated to the Australian. He never took a backward step. When it started, the Australian was very different to the newspaper we know today. It was the only Australian paper to oppose the Vietnam War. It took a stand against the White Australia policy and it campaigned to save the Great Barrier Reef. In the first issue, there's a high-minded editorial on the front page that declares, quote, here you will find impartial information and independent thinking. 
We shall not hesitate to speak fearlessly. We shall criticise. We will not be influenced when there's a need for us to be outspoken. Sandra Hall, the young reporter who moved from Sydney, ended up working on the women's desk and they took the beat seriously, aiming stories at professional women. The newsroom was scrappy in those early days, but they really believed in what they were doing. We were all there for 14-hour days and it was very cold. The building wasn't quite finished and a lot of the time we were, weather was bad and we were walking in over duckboards because there was so much mud around the building. Then we get up there and work in our coats because it was so cold, no, no heating at that stage. And then we were getting to know one another and just figuring out what everybody was doing. Rupert might have been stingy when it came to the heating, but he had no qualms about spending buckets of money when it came to chasing stories. He even bought his reporters a fleet of Morris miners so they could zip off to town whenever news was breaking. It was a total education for me. I learned more in that first year. I mean, I might not have been doing wonderful work, but just watching how the paper was put together and how they approached certain things. Rupert wanted quality journalism, and he was meticulous about how the paper should look and read. They had a bulletin board, and the first week of the paper, I remember everybody going over to the bulletin board with bated breath because Murdoch would put these very specific critiques of the paper of the day before, you know, like criticising story choices and headings and placement of subheads and, you know, they were really, (laughs) it was really nuts and bolts stuff. And he'd learned from his father and he learned from Adelaide where he'd started off. You know, he had some very good mentors. But nothing Rupert had learned from his mentors could help him when it came to the unique challenges of printing The Australian. Every night, the printing mats had to be flown out of the capital to presses in Sydney and Melbourne for distribution around the country. But Canberra gets pretty foggy, especially in winter. In the first few months, you'd find Rupert down at the airport pleading with the pilots to take off. He once even suggested they'd light kegs of oil down the runway just to clear the fog. It's easy to think of Rupert now as someone who could do whatever he wants, but back when he launched The Australian, he still had a company board he had to keep on site. In the weeks after the paper launched, a special delegation of the company directors flew in from Adelaide. It was a crisis meeting and the news wasn't good. Some of them wanted him to scale it back, make it weekly. Others wanted him to shut it down altogether. He ran very close to the wind in the early days of the Australian and the uh, editors and managers of his um, other operations around Australia absolutely hated the fact that their profits were being taken and poured into this cockamamie idea which was never going to work. By this point, Mark Day, one of the original copyboys from Adelaide, was on the rise inside the Murdoch Empire and he'd go on to write a short history of the Australian's early years. It was very, very difficult. He he had his entire board against him, telling him, shut it down, shut it down. And Rupert resolutely refused, and it didn't make money for many, many years. Why did he do it? If it was not making money, why did he do it? That was his father's idea. He saw that this was his father's grand vision, that the nation needed a newspaper to tie it all together. And his father wanted to do it but couldn't, and Rupert judged that he could. Rupert flat out refused to shut down the Oz. The Australian was not just about business for Rupert, that was already clear. 
but he did make one change, and that was to move production of the paper from Canberra to Sydney. As Rupert said, we don't want to have to have a miracle every day just to get the paper out. By the late 1960s, the Australian was starting to do what Rupert had hoped. It was being read by the right people and giving him political sway in Canberra. Just as his father had had 30 years earlier. Do you like the feeling of power you have as a newspaper proprietor of being able to sort of formulate policies for a large number of newspapers in every state of Australia? Well, there's only one honest answer to that, of course, and that's yes. Um, of course one enjoys the feeling of power. We have more responsibility than power, I think. The newspaper can uh, create great controversies, stir up uh, uh, arguments within the community, discussion, uh, can throw light on injustices, uh, just as it can do the opposite, it can hide things uh, and be a great power for evil. Rupert wanted to be a kingmaker, like his father, Sir Keith. All he needed was a king. After the break, Rupert finds a surprising candidate. Hi, I'm Benjamin Law, one of the journalists from the highly acclaimed podcast by the powerhouse, 100 Climate Conversations. Join us as we speak to 100 Australians like Simon Holmes Accord, Venus Ajwala and Ronnie Khan, who are responding to climate change issues across clean energy, green manufacturing, food waste and more. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Watch, play, make and discover at Acme. Located in the heart of Melbourne at Fed Square, Acme has something for the whole family to enjoy. Play classic and indie video games. Discover the stories behind iconic Australian film and TV. Make memories in our free interactive exhibition. Or watch the best of local and international film in our cinemas. Acme is your museum of screen culture. Open daily. Visit today. In 1967, four years after the launch of the Oz, a unique politician was starting to generate buzz. Tall, with a booming voice and full of courage and ideas, Gough Whitlam had taken over as leader of the opposition Labor Party. At about the same time, Rupert heard that a young economist from Adelaide, John Menadue, was leaving Whitlam's office and looking for a new challenge. Menadue jumped at the chance to work for Rupert. When did you first meet Rupert Murdoch? I met him first when I was working for Gough in Canberra. I got to know the people in the Canberra Press Gallery pretty well, and Rupert being always interested in politics, probably in a low-key way in back in those days of 1967, uh, I secured a job as, initially, personal secretary to Rupert. It wasn't really a job of any description, but uh, within six or eight weeks, I became general manager of The Australian. I think Rupert saw that John Menadue was an incredible talent, but he also saw there could be a political payoff in hiring the chief of staff of the likely next prime minister. Men and women of Australia, the decision we will make for our country on the 2nd of December is a choice between the past 
and the future. Between the By 1972, Whitlam was making his second tilt at the lodge with his famous It's Time campaign. There are moments in history when the whole fate and future of nations can be decided by a single decision. For Australia, this is such a time. There was a huge amount of momentum and excitement. Rupert wanted in. Why would Rupert, as a businessman, support a Labor government uh, at the end of the 60s? Rupert, I think, came to the view that uh, that golf was a prospect, a good prospect of winning. Rupert increasingly always liked to be on the winning side, and Rupert was open-minded. He saw an opportunity, and I think a national interest, in backing Labor and backing a winner. Rupert used Manaju as his conduit to the up-and-coming leader. I organised quite a lot of dinners and meetings between Gough and Rupert. The first was about, I think, must be in the middle of 71. It was at the Hungry Horse, if I recall rightly, in Paddington. But uh, Rupert was there, Anna, his wife, uh, Gough and Margaret, Ken May, who was chairman of the Australian Operations and I was there. The dinner went well, and after that, Rupert's papers turned their support to Whitlam's election bid. In one editorial, the Australian wrote, quote, Mr Whitlam's program has vision, while the Liberals' policy is threadbare. It's leadership tired. Another headline read, it's time for change. Rupert even made a financial commitment to the Whitlam campaign, promising $75,000 worth of free advertising in The Australian. On election eve, the front page called Labor the party for our times. Was it all the newspapers or was it simply the Australian that was Rupert's mouthpiece or did it involve the tabloids as well? It was all of them. And, and that's the way it works. The Australian is regarded as the flagship and Rupert doesn't have to tell other newspapers what to do. They look at what the Australian is saying and follow suit and, of course, a whole string of editors uh, across the country who knew what Rupert wanted, uh, they didn't have to be instructed. Rupert had clout. By 1972, News Limited had newspapers or magazines in every mainland capital. They were publishing more than a million papers a day. The support from Rupert's papers was so enthusiastic that an ABC reporter even asked Whitlam if he'd done a secret deal with Murdoch. Certainly not, Whitlam replied. Congratulations, Mr. Well, thank you, gentlemen. It, um... it worked, and Whitlam won. Rightly or wrongly, Rupert believed he'd swung the election for Gough. After the election, he said to me several times, how many seats do you think we won for Labor? Oh, it was boots and all. There was no doubt whatsoever uh, Rupert was determined on a Labor victory, and he was quite excited about it. Rupert wanted access to the new Prime Minister. But after the election, Whitlam went cold. John saw a pattern emerging. When he tried to set something up with Rupert, Whitlam pushed back. Kept telling me I'm too effing busy to go on a cruise with Rupert. I can't make it. I won't do it. It was a barrage of excuses. 
When he did manage to get them in a room together over a dinner or at a party, Menadju would hear back from Goff, Comrade, it was the most boring time of my life. The chemistry was never there. In his memoir, Menadju wrote that Whitlam was shy, had an aversion to small talk, and was sceptical of people with money. He'd want to talk to Rupert about his newspapers. Rupert would want to talk about federal politics. They just didn't hit it off. Once again, Rupert was close to power, but he didn't yet know how to handle it. Rupert never did establish the close personal relationship he'd hoped for with Whitlam, and it probably made his next decision that much easier. Why did Rupert Murdoch turn against the Whitlam government? In the 1974 election, Rupert was then getting doubts about Labor, particularly their economic management. I think that was the driving force. And all the business acquaintances that Rupert had, the advertisers, were all bad-mouthing Goff. And I think he picked that flavour up and became sceptical and he pulled out all the stops again to achieve a political result that he desired. Sentiment was starting to swing against Labor. The Whitlam government was in trouble. They were lacking experience, they were internally divided, and the economy was reeling from the oil shock in 1973. Menadju, who'd now been working for Rupert for seven years, sensed a shift to the political right and felt increasingly uncomfortable. In 1974, Menadju quit. We just drifted apart. I had no interest in contacting Rupert. He had no interest in contacting me. That's the way it was. He returned to work for Whitlam, this time as head of the Prime Minister's own department. That same year, Rupert Murdoch had a Christmas party at his cavern property near Canberra. Sir John Kerr, the Governor-General, turned up and, after a few too many drinks, explained how he had the power to sack the Prime Minister and under what circumstances he might do it. Rupert tucked that knowledge away, a full year before it happened. He was sure of one thing. The Whitlam government was done for. Through 1975, headlines from the Australian before the dismissal show how they turned on Whitlam. The once fawning headline, Goff's Promise, Cheap Rent, was now republished as Goff's Panic, Cheap Rent. Menadju was aghast at how biased the News Limited papers were becoming against Whitlam. Rupert was a very clear and important player in the dismissal of the government. Uh, He was part of the inner circle with Malcolm Fraser uh, in the dismissal, and uh, I found that uh, unacceptable. At a lunch with his old boss, John told Rupert he'd cancelled his subscription to The Australian. Murdoch brushed it off, and the barrage continued as The Australian ratcheted up the pressure on John Kerr. They wanted the Governor-General to act. Menadju has no doubt Rupert knew what was going on and was dictating the editorial line of his newspapers. In November 1975, it finally happened. Whitlam was dismissed by the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr. Back in Sydney at the Daily Mirror office, Mark Day showed Rupert the editorial he was going to run about the dismissal. We wrote an editorial the day after the sacking, and I sent it around to Rupert for approval. 
But it came back with two words changed. The final line was, more in sorrow than in anger, Whitlam has to go. And Rupert sent it back and changed, crossed out the has to and wrote must. <laughs> there was no other time that I can remember where there was a, an editorial, in effect, dictated by Rupert. Did you agree with him? Yes, boss. The Australian backed the dismissal and campaigned against the Whitlam government as the country headed to an election. Labor was wiped out. Later, when Gough was asked if he was surprised at how hard people had turned against him at the polls, he blamed Rupert directly. No, it didn't surprise me because we had all the media against us, as we always do, but they were particularly virulent at that time. And in fact, Uh, the Murdoch papers had a strike in their hands because of the degree to which the owner was intervening. It was true. Inside the newsroom, some staff felt the Australians' coverage had become so biased, they passed a resolution condemning the editorial intervention and walked out. Even readers revolted. Mark Day remembered them marching on Holt Street, the News Limited headquarters in Surrey Hills, ripping papers off the shelves and chucking them out on the street. Inside the building, the staff were fielding angry phone calls. And Rupert manned the phones, along with various others. As soon as one call was finished with, then another one. And Rupert would pick it up and he'd listen to what they had to say. He'd, he would have a conversation with them and say, thank you very much. And so He'd never let on that it was Rupert. You know, I'm just a copy boy here manning the phones. You know, He'd answer his critics directly on the telephone. I asked Mark Day, Rex Drury and Les Hinton, three of Rupert's longest-serving and most loyal lieutenants, about this most tumultuous time of Rupert's life. Rex and Mark were in a studio in Adelaide whilst Les was at home in New York. But despite the time zone differences, they insisted on being interviewed together. The whole conversation went for about two and a half hours. Rupert did a complete 180-degree turn throughout the course of the Whitlam government. Was that driven by Rupert Murdoch himself? That was, it's fair to say, a bias campaign. It was a very vigorous, aggressive campaign to destabilise a government. Yeah, but, but, the, but the government wasn't destabilised. It was constitutionally overturned in an absolutely unparalleled in the whole of the Commonwealth situation. You know, you had a governor-general who kicked the, the prime minister out. News didn't, didn't make that happen. Well, they certainly called for it. The Australian editorials well, were, saying, were saying that Kerr must act. Kerr acted in, in total accordance with the, the Oz's editorials. You just thought it was good advice, Mark. <laughs> well, it probably was at the time, although it's proved to be very doubtful since. Yeah. What happened next surprised me. I asked what I thought was a pretty straightforward question about Rupert's influence, but I seem to have offended Les Hinton. Was it all about political influence that he wanted a broadsheet to give himself and his empire, you know, power in Canberra? Paddy, that is such a... Why would you ask that question? Why would you... What possible genesis would there be for thinking that he would be primarily driven by political influence as opposed to creating a successful, widely read newspaper? Where does that come from? Well, the idea is, I suppose, that his father was a kingmaker. So... I just wonder whether the Australian was a vehicle for Rupert's potential political influence because it certainly wasn't making money. But what, what why say, else would you do it? 
But why would you do it? What, what use would you have of, for the political influence? But he used it for political influence no, but, in, no, the, but the, in but the Whitlam days. It's so obvious why you want to be in, in journalism, whether you're a columnist or whether you're an editorial writer, you want to do it to, to, to put what you think is the, the best foot forward for your readers. You want to represent your readers, you want to champion your readers, and you, if you think a, a, a politician is crap, then you want to remove the politician. That's what newspapers have been like since the beginning of newspapers. So if you have a newspaper, you have influence. Of course you do. But of course you do. But that, but that's it isn't a newspaper if you don't if it's not read and respected and and uh, and influential. What would be the point of it? That's the whole point. You want to, you want readers to become loyal to what you're doing to make money, and clearly that expression of it is amplified by this newspaper, whether you're the editor or whether you're the owner. Thirteen years after the dismissal, Rupert was again in John Menadieu's orbit. This time, it was explicitly about Rupert's father. When Rupert was a boy, Keith Murdoch ran the Herald and Weekly Times, which he'd built up into the country's first national media empire. But he never owned a significant stake. He was always an employee. Rupert was always angry that it wasn't part of his inheritance. Just as he'd launched The Australian because his father had wanted to and couldn't, Rupert was now going to go back and buy the company his dad was never able to own. You could look at it as an act of revenge on behalf of Keith, or as an ambitious son showing he was no longer overshadowed, that he could do better than his father. It was a long-held ambition on Rupert's part, wasn't it? He'd already tried once to buy back the Herald and Weekly Times in 1979, but failed. That's right. I think he felt he'd been dotted by the Melbourne establishment. Rupert felt that was the inheritance that he had been denied, that that was what his father controlled, and Rupert always had his heart back in Australia in getting the Melbourne Herald. In late 1986, Treasurer Paul Keating announces cross-media law reforms. He wanted media barons to decide they could either be princes of print or queens of the screen. Rupert picked print. The door was now open for him to acquire the Herald and Weekly Times and in the process establish the near-print monopoly that he enjoys to this day and that makes Australia the most concentrated media market in the world. That monopoly was no accident. Rupert has sought to establish a monopoly in every market he's entered. He once told one of his editors that monopoly was, quote, a terrible thing, unless, of course, it's your monopoly. During the Herald and Weekly Times takeover, it happened that John Menadieu was working for the Hawke and Keating government as Secretary of the Department of Trade. After I spoke to Mick Young, who was in the Cabinet, Hawke Cabinet, I said, why the hell did you do that, giving the Melbourne Herald to Rupert? And he said to me, Jack, the Melbourne Herald is always against us. Rupert is sometimes with us. Labor learned its lesson back in 1975, They'd seen what could happen if you get Rupert Murdoch offside. Do you think it was a mistake by the Hawke government, and in particular by Treasurer Paul Keating, to approve that acquisition? Oh, yes, I think there's, there's no doubt in the world that um, that has been a great disservice to Australia. The, the Herald and Weekly Times just added to the problems of the way d- democracy has been debauched 
in this country and it's getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, and Rupert has played a major part in that. The decision wasn't just about money. By gaining control of the Herald and Weekly Times, Rupert had again outdone his father, who was never rich enough to buy it himself. Rupert described the acquisition as emotional. I heard that he would turn up at his father's old office, sit in his father's chair. It was like he was a kid again, visiting his dad at work. For Rupert, News Corp is a family business. Something that always strikes me is that many of the people who are close to him stay loyal their entire lives. Time and again, people describe this ruthless businessman as a patriarch, a father figure, a mentor. Do you feel like part of a family? I've always felt that Rupert has been a sort of father figure. Um, I've probably spent more in expenses than I've actually earned in salary under Rupert, which has been very generous of him, uh, including buying bottles of Grange wine and other things. Um, Yeah, I think there's an affection which is almost family. I'd agree with that without... uh... You didn't buy the Grange? (laughs) No, I didn't buy the Grange. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Next episode, Rupert takes his ambition to the UK. He becomes one of the richest men in the world with the help of political favours from Margaret Thatcher and a protracted, violent war with the men and women who printed his papers. To me, it's the society and the leadership of society that allows creatures like that to dominate that needs to be changed. Subscribe to Rupert, The Last Mogul, for new episodes every Wednesday. Rupert, The Last Mogul is hosted by me, Paddy Manning. Our supervising producer is Shane Anderson. Mixing, compositions and additional production by Zoltan Fetcho. Our executive producer is Sarah McVie. Eric Jensen is our editor-in-chief. Thanks to Professor Sally Young, author of Paper Emperors and Media Monsters, and Julie Rigg, who both contributed to this episode. Thanks for listening.